Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Shapasri Chakravarti. She's Assistant Professor of English Rhetoric at Ashoka University in India. Shapasri, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda, for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be here today and talk with you about my favorite mystic, Kana. And I am so excited to hear about Kana, and I'm sure everyone out there is too. But before we get into her, Tell us a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself studying a mystic? So my training is in rhetorics. And the way I started thinking about Kana was not through mysticism, but through rhetorics. So I came across Kana's saying as a child, you know, growing up in the state of West Bengal in India. And I came from a conservative or at least partially conservative Brahmin family. And we had this yearly almanacs in our house where I would see that she had a couple of pages dedicated to Kona's saints. And these were, you know, kind of predictions, but also not quite so. It was also about how to live your life in a proper way, how to kind of think about doing things. So it's these were kind of directives. They were also can be seen as sort of soothsaying. So it, it was a mix of all. I, I cannot find one kind of category to put this into, but they were written in very beautiful poetic couplets, which caught my attention mostly. And it was easy to remember them, easy to say them. And sometimes we would just speak about them out of nowhere, not necessarily to believe in them or think about them, but just to kind of have it handy and and refer to them from time to time. So for instance, like, you know, there's a couplet where she says that if you are going out for some kind of an important business, then it's good if you see a glass or a tumbler or a bucket full of water as opposed to an empty bucket. So this is her way of saying that this is auspicious, this is good, this will help you in some kind of uh, creating a positive vibe for whatever the work is that you're going to do. And so I would often say that when we would go for my exams or to school on a special day, and I would remember that just because it's there available, not to follow it. It didn't mean that I would have a tumbler full of water waiting for me, but saying it kind of was fun. So that's how I remembered and came to her and thought about her. When I grew older and I started working with, with rhetorics and the discipline of rhetorics, then I felt that there was something in that which I could approach and think about and speak and do kind of an academic critical study of. So that's how I came to it. And then I dug deeper into, into why she was saying this, what happened, what's her background. I saw that there was a lot there, including mysticism hidden there. Oh, okay. So you were actually familiar with Kana growing up. And then when you got more interested in studying rhetoric, you actually came back to her. Absolutely. That's correct. That's fantastic. And I love what you're saying about how even though you personally didn't invest a lot of belief in these sayings, that people still do. And that even those who don't, because they are beautifully phrased and stick in your mind, that when one would be relevant, it still comes back to you. Yeah, absolutely. That's true for me. But that's for me, you know, growing up in the urban space that I did. And this is very different when you transplant Kana to a rural setting. So she came from a rural background in Bengal. And there is a lot of controversy about who she was, how did she 
appear in Bengal and she was not born there or that's what generally believed that she was not born there. But in rural Bengal, she is actually seen as a more significant person, you know, and her, her sayings, her directives are taken more seriously. And I believe even parts of Bengal in India today, people follow what she had advised in terms of agricultural production or how to predict the future, especially, as I said, involving agriculture, but also I hear for architecture and for all other things. So she's not limited to any one kind of specific sub-discipline. She's actually if I can say so, all over the place. She's she's in many directions. But the thing about her is that the legend goes that when she actually used to predict this, they were very accurate. People actually found them useful. They were very utilitarian. They put them into use and also benefited from them. So this is, I'm talking about a group of rural Bengali communities in 12th century AD, you know, in Bengal, and who had no other means of having a better life. So that's when Khanna's advice became very important to them. And it became important to them because they started believing. And I think Khanna also encouraged that they started believing that she was a mystic. So she kind of had the answers. It came to her and she was helping them. So they would believe in her and they would follow what she said. And when they reap the benefits it came back upon her mysticism you know it was an accomplishment in mysticism that helped her and them so that's how the narrative was constructed mostly for the general public for the group of people who were listening to her and doing this but there was as we understand there was another part of her narrative which rarely got spoken about and which i find aligns itself very mysteriously to mysticism because this is where I find this a fascinating study because Hana was, by other evidence available, if I can say so, was also a very well-trained mathematician. So here we have a trained scientist who is using mysticism to basically use her scientific understanding of things and then talking about it, but through the language of mysticism. So this is very, very interesting to me. I love that she's involved in so many different areas of life and that people are still finding her sayings and her advice useful and helpful in their daily lives. One of the things I'm really enjoying about this podcast is learning about these mystics whose works and traditions and influence have lived on. Back in episode 16, I talked to Alexandra Varini about Mirabai and how people still find a lot of value and a lot of interest in her life and her mysticism. So I'm always enjoying seeing that happen. And I definitely want to get into more of that. But before we do, can we backtrack a little bit? Can you tell us a little bit about what we know about Kona? You mentioned that there's some controversy around who she was and where she was from. What do we know? So for Kona, apart from this list that I spoke about earlier, you know, which I came across as a young girl in those almanacs, which is a kind of a list of prophecies, okay, if I can say so. But they are like written in poetic couplets, but it is a range and there are probably over a hundred of them all compiled, consolidated together and known as Khanna's bachun. Bachun means her speech or things she said. And they are prophecies, basically. And again, it's kind of an overlapping genre between 
prophecy and directives and kind of ways of improving life development, how to sow your seed, how to do agricultural practice, but also how to build your house to prevent it from being flooded. So this, if you talk about discipline, I mean, of course, it's a pre-enlightenment piece of writing. So there is no disciplinary awareness or let's say the subdisciplinary awareness that we are like, so readily aware of now. There's none of those available in her saying. So she kind of moves. One minute she's saying that, okay, if you want to sow paddy and you want to get a good harvest at the end of the season, then this is what you do. The next moment she is saying that if you want to travel, these are the auspicious moments on which you can travel. And another moment she's saying that if this is the job that you need to do within your family, if you want to keep a happy family, this is what you are required to do. So you see, they are coming from different directions. They are not necessarily any one kind. So I see that there is no sub-genre or sub-discipline that I can say, okay, Khana speaks about any one thing. But that being said, I feel that she addresses only those issues which she can mathematically derive most. And this mathematics, again, if you look into ancient mathematics as practiced in India, it is probably a good part mathematics, but also a good part astronomy and astrology. So it is those three things combined that makes a sort of, if I can again say, pre-modern mathematics. And she was trained in that. Like there are researchers now who see her as coming to her predictions from a very, very astute series of calculations that she does. And so she, that's how she comes up with her inferences or her conclusions. And where did she get her mathematical training from? This is the most you know, vague thing that we see. So roughly speaking, Kana lived somewhere between 8th and 12th century. Now, this is 400 years, right? There is no singular moment that we can take from this and say, this is your moment of birth. She was not native to Bengal, where we see her most of her sayings and the language they are written in. But it's generally believed she's not native to this place. So then again, we kind of try to go back and see where did she come from. There are two versions of the legends. One is that she was born to some king in present or modern day Sri Lanka, which is south of India. And by various means, one of which is getting married to this man called Mihir, whose parents resided in Bengal, and that's how she came to Bengal. Uh, but that also does not quite qualify. How did she get so good with the language? She's also creating poetry in that language. Or what kind of training did she have if she came in as an adult? But none of those questions are answered anyway. So then the other thing is, if you go back and see the other legend that is available about her birth. So there is this young girl called Lilavati, who was a 12th century mathematician's daughter and uh, whose father was also a great astronomer and astrologer. And his name was Bhaskaracharya. And Bhaskaracharya's daughter, Lilavati, who was this mathematical prodigy. She was somebody who was really good and he, he really uh, admired and all that. But because he was also an astrologer, he predicted that she will never get married for whatever reason. And he didn't want that kind of a life for his daughter. So he tried to perform rituals so that they can avoid 
what they saw as a misfortune, you know, not being able to get married. But that ritual was not successful for various reasons and Lilavati remained unmarried. But Bhaskaracharya wrote books on arithmetic in which he mentions her over and over again. So imagine this is a 12th century mathematic textbook where a woman is kind of a protagonist. And she is not only lauded for her tremendous mathematical genius, but also that she will not get married and that she will not have a very fulfilling life is also predicted. But then we don't have anything more than that. So a version of this legend goes that this Lilavati was Kana who did get married, but her marriage was not a very successful match. So as far as the birth of Kana goes, this is what I have and I've found so far that either way, both of these legends come from the southern part of India or Indian subcontinent. And therefore, one thing is fairly clear that it is not from Bengal where she actually produces her work. So there is this juncture between where she was born, how she was raised, where her training comes from, and where she actually becomes a mystic. Just to backtrack for a second into the kind of things she wrote, you mentioned sayings and advice, but you've also mentioned prophecy and predictions. And you mentioned that there's a lot of people who are still very invested in the things that she said and wrote. So is there any of these predictions still pending? Are people expecting something from what she said to still be coming true? Or is it much more about daily advice, yearly cycles, keeping on top of things that will happen if you don't do a certain thing in more of a minute daily ritual kind of way? That's a great question, because the reason I'm using prophecy or prediction, and you can see I'm using a a number of terms for this, is because there is no one way. And first of all, the way it is spoken about in Bengal, it's called bochon. Again, bochon is just speech, a saying. So if I literally translate it, it's Kona's sayings. Perfect. So let's get into a little bit the content of these sayings. So these sayings do not quite predict a future in terms of a specific future, but they do kind of give you directives or they instruct you what to do for a good, fulfilling, rural life where you have a good harvest every year, where you are not exposed to other kinds of, let's say, weather-related ailments or other kinds of difficulties, which is very common, you know, especially in rural Indian life. Agricultural life, definitely, but also, like I said, that there could be a flood and how must you make your house so that you can prevent the flood from entering your rooms or maybe what are the dangers that you should foresee in a community of farmers? So what you should be looking out for? Who should you be including? So again, these are predictions only in so far as they tell you what to do and how to kind of gain success by doing things. But at the same time, it's not individualized. It's not customized. It's not about how one person can technically do it. And therefore, anybody can follow So for the agriculture predictions, there are many of those. So they can say that if you want to do three good harvests a year, then you should follow three primary harvests with all these other secondary harvests. And then, you know, you should work from noon today and then rest for two hours and then come up. So it's like a weird kind of instructions, you know, which will tell you how to have a good harvesting season. Or for instance, you know, how much you should eat 
So it actually tells you, for instance, that suddenly they're in the middle of all this, you know, agricultural practices. You'll see uh, a couple of couplets that say, okay, you should never eat full meals. You should have half a plate, reduce portion sizes, and then you can lead a healthy life and a long life. So then you're wondering who's asking her about this, you know, like why is she saying this? And what is the purpose and the good faith in this? And I think maybe somebody probably died of overeating, you know, in the village. And then she realizes that, you know, there is a way she can counter that by helping the people. Or maybe a group of people died out of some kind of a food-related or food-borne illness. And she took it upon herself to speak about diets and limitations and restrictions there too. So this is what I find very erratic, but also almost sensational about it. So you never get bored. You're always surprised. For me, again, you know, given who I am, to read Connor and go through those series of agricultural predictions, I know some people follow it, but I also do not know how many follow it in as details as possible, even up to now. But, you know, I've seen a few research papers, especially coming from Bangladesh, which is the other half of the state of West Bengal in India now. So the country was partitioned in 1947 at the end of uh, British colonialism. And so the part of the state that was partitioned became the current country of Bangladesh. And so Khanna's sayings are also quite prevalent there and people also follow. And I saw quite a few research papers being published from academia there, which talks about how useful her predictions have been and how people still do use it again in rural Bangladesh. And so there is architecture, there is agriculture, there is daily life, there is so many things, you know, women, how to treat women or what should women do, so many things that she tries to cover. So I kind of feel she is a polyglot. She is a person who is kind of constantly training herself to find new ways and methods with a deep sense of public service, you know, with a deep sense of helping people. And with her covering so many different areas of life, is there one particular saying or particular area or theme that she discusses that you find particularly interesting? Yeah. Okay. So there is this other side of Hana. And I think this is a good time to bring that up. So Kana, I feel reading her, now that I read them with a kind of a different lens, I feel Kana was obviously a victim of domestic abuse. And this domestic abuse was inflicted upon her by her father-in-law and not her husband. Of course, I'm sure the husband was implicit because I don't see any resistance. So the end to Kana's life happens in a very unfortunate incident where her tongue was cut off. And that is because she was getting very good at her predictions. She was actually being so accurate and so good at it that it caused some kind of a professional jealousy in her father-in-law, who was also a good mathematician or very well-known So this is where the disciplinary war, you know, and the other fact about her life comes out. So her Father-in-law was a very, very well-known mathematician from Bengal. And it was actually, he was also known all over India. And he was one of the favorites of, of the king, you know, the local or the state king. 
And once Kana was married and she came and she showed her talent in mathematics, it so happened, again, another story about her life that once the king's son fell very ill and Kana's father-in-law, Baraho, was called upon to come and predict what will happen and say, is he going to live or not? So he predicted and whatever he predicted was not right. So then Kana actually came up and I think she probably went up to the king herself and said, no, there was a mistake in that prediction and I can tell you what will happen. And then she rewrote that prediction. So she did that and whatever she said came true, obviously more than her father-in-law. King, And that obviously caught the king's attention and the king noticed her. And so she was called upon to the court more often and asked about her opinion, which the father-in-law didn't take very well. And this went on for a while. And at the same time, you know, when Kana started using, again, I said her mathematical skills to predict for the rural people who obviously didn't have a great life or lifestyle. And so her prediction helped them to kind of formulate ideas or kind of activities to better their living conditions, which made her famous. And I think the way she spoke about it, that's where I find the literary aspect of yet another disciplinary part of her training that she was so good in her poetry and her poetic creations and who knows where that talent came. And so people could remember it, could think about it. Like I said, these couplets are very handy if you want to keep them so. And so this father-in-law got more and more dissatisfied with Kana's emerging fame. And eventually she was asked to stop doing this, which I think she did not follow very much. And then the legend is either he did this job himself, he cut off her tongue himself, or he asked somebody to do it. And in both cases, Kana was somewhere convinced to believe that this is how she can maintain peace in her household and have a good married life. So she didn't have an agency to say no and and her tongue was cut off and that's how she stopped predicting. Though the tongue may not necessarily be useful if she is you know, trained in mathematics to come, but it was very symbolic and it was seen as an end to either her life or her prediction. So yeah, that's our end. So the question that you asked as to particularly the ones I like. So now that I go back and read it, there are quite a few, maybe not a whole lot, but let's say if we look into 150 couplets, there's definitely 10 to 20 where she directly calls upon her father-in-law as a man who doesn't know enough, you know, who's stupid and who, who's not predicting well and And so there is a very subtle, implicit, subversive thing that she is doing against her father-in-law. And and even a couple of them, even her husband, she's like, what are you doing? You know, you know nothing and you can't understand anything and you, you guys are no good. And what you said isn't good. So kind of these invocations are made in the couplets. And I find them now very, very interesting. And it's the one redeeming thing about this reading this and knowing her life and understanding how being a woman of her time was so difficult for her in every possible way from her own mathematician father thinking her life is useless because she may not ever marry 
or even when she married, you know, not to be able to practice her profession. And in that kind of a mutilation, you know, in all this, I find a very sad, obviously, life and story. But when I read those couplets where she is her only method of directly resisting or subverting her father-in-law's authority, I go, wow, good for you, girl. <laughs> this is exactly how it should be. So, so yeah, those are the couplets I find very, very important, interesting, and fascinating. It is so impressive to me that those couplets survived, not only because she was from the 8th to 12th century, which, though vague, is a long time for any works to survive, and we're lucky to have everything we do, but also there's so much societal pressure on women and families and correct behavior that the idea that she not only wrote these statements about how her father-in-law was bad at his job and she was better than him and criticizing him and his abilities, that not only that she wrote them, but that they survived unedited, unchanged, weren't removed because of familial pressure. That's so fascinating to me. I love it. It is. It is indeed. But if you, you know, you know, this is also a very interesting part of poetic traditions in India that all poets kind of try to stamp their signature in their poems, you know, and Khana too does it. There's a self-referential quality in those couplets. So she kind of often say, Khana says this, so that nobody forgets that it is her saying and it's not an abstract concept. And she actually says, my father-in-law or the father-in-law. So then you realize that she's weaving that signature of who she is and what she's writing and why she's writing. And part of it is, yes, to tell the world. And then that kind of a poetic quality usually remains. Like Mirabai is also another mystic who signs her name in her own songs and pageants. And so she says that Mirabai says this. And that is preserved. That's kind of seen as an ethical thing to do. And it is never erased. And I think somewhere because of her signature being associated with this kind of a personalized notation of what her father-in-law was or what he did, you're right, it seems odd, but it is not odd. I mean, if I look into that tradition of preserving the signature of the poet within these kind of poetic forms, I do see how it might have lived for centuries. I'm so glad that you brought up these particular couplets, because I love any time in a mystical text where you really do see the identity or the character of the mystic instead of a facade or kind of really general ideas. I like it when you can kind of see that they're a person. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I said it's a somewhere where she refers to, yes, who she is and why she has faith in herself and her audience should also have so too. And this is the rhetorical part of my own scholarly study of this is that how she retains the voice. The voice is so important. And voice is also so important in mysticism. This voice I see is a great way of making interventions into the mystical quality of her personality, of her identity. And what does mysticism do to that? And how is she using mysticism specifically? So let's talk a little bit about why we might define her as a mystic, because obviously she's using mathematics. She's much more scientific than spiritual, it seems, as far as how she's coming up with this information. So why does she get classified as a mystic? 
Yeah, that's obviously a very essential core question. The way, again, I read it is here is Connor who was trained in mathematics as a young girl. And, you know, she might have some natural talent and then that was trained and, and she became very good at this. But astrology and all mathematicians, at least in pre-modern India, did practice a good bit of astrology because astrology was seen as something of a branch of mathematics. So they did practice astrology and there was a strong connection between astrology and religion. So astrology, because there is this kind of predictive quality of astrology or astrology kind of tells you what might happen in future, which is where it is employing the mathematical methodology, but it is also making a prediction, right? So that is the vague, that is the abstract, and that is where I, astrology joins hand with religious practices or a certain kind of religious motivation. So anybody who practices astrology at that time period is also automatically seen as having something to do with religion. And this is also, again, I keep saying this, the pre-enlightenment version of these disciplines did not necessarily see themselves as widely apart from each other. But there is something more. And again, this is one of the fascinating things I find about Hana's life is she is the one who is calling herself a mystic. So obviously you can see that she's predicting something. And then people are coming and asking her, how do you know? That's a very basic question. How do you know? And why should I follow you? How do you know? And that's when she says, I know because it has come to me. So she is a mystic who's trying to use the methodology of mysticism to hide her training in mathematics. She is using mysticism as the interface. She's using mysticism as a kind of public identity so that she does not have to speak about her mathematical training because somewhere she understands that her mathematical training will lead to trouble in her life. And so for her, if I can bluntly put it, it is easier to be a mystic than a mathematician. And the twist here, as I see it also, is that it somehow is taken into consideration that if you call yourself a mystic, you do not have to quite explain how you are saying what you are saying. So there is no real reasoning involved. If I tell you today, Amanda, you have to do this to get through the day tomorrow. And I say I'm a mystic and I'm telling this because I just know it. It's coming to me from some other plane of reality or consciousness, that I'm kind of obfuscating reasoning to some extent. I'm kind of, you know, bypassing a deeper logical explanation. And somewhere I feel this was liberatory for Connor, especially because she used mysticism like this. And this may not be the most prevalent way of using mysticism. Maybe other mystics don't use it, but she got away doing this. This hid her other identity, other personality. And she came up with the reasoning or the logic of mysticism, the identity of being a mystic, to tell her audience that it's just coming to me. And they were happy to take that as long as it helped them. Beyond the point, they didn't question it. So in fact, there was no resistance from her audience. They did not suspect her. They did not threaten her. There was nothing there. I mean, nothing that is documented. 
That is so counterintuitive from a modern perspective, because if you came to me and said, hey, you need to do these things in order to have a successful life, and I asked where you got the information, and you said, oh, well, this has just come to me, I would respond by saying, that's ridiculous. No, I'm not going to do that. Whereas if you came to me and said, no, I figured out this really complicated mathematical, scientific, logical pattern that means that if you follow these instructions, you will actually be able to make better use of your resources and live a better life. That makes more sense to me, and that's what I would do. It's so interesting that for Kona, it was completely the other way around. Absolutely. I mean, that's why the whole post-enlightenment rhetoric, rhetorical vision, because now we will not take anything from anybody that has not been logically explained to us. So unless there is a reasoning that we not only can see and understand and also believe, then no matter how accurate it is, you may still not perform your duties accordingly, or you may not listen to what I'm asking. But what mattered was for her general public audience was were they benefiting or not. And maybe there were a few who were not happy with her, but we find no documentation of that. And she is still, again, in cultural memory, in the collective cultural memory, she's remembered as a good person, as a benevolent person, as somebody who really helped others. And uh, I would like to think that there weren't too many people who were averse to what she was doing. Not even the king, for that matter. Often in these cases, you'll see that the king also takes a dislike to the mystical proceedings. And then he will come and cause a disruption. But in her case, no, the king loved her as far as we understand because she saved his son's life and what king will not be happy about that? So from all spheres, she is being supported, cheered on. It's a generally a very happy, positive atmosphere around her practice of mysticism and prophecies and predictions and whatever we call it. And that's really interesting in itself, because these works often do contain evidence of a lot of pushback. When somebody claims herself to be a mystic, I mean, she's already treading into very dangerous path. That is so because practicing mysticism is kind of a mixed bag, because on one hand, you can be respected, applauded for your mystical findings. But on the other hand, you're also seen as somebody who's out of the ordinary, out of the mundane, not quite belonging to the everyday realities of life. So mystics kind of have to constantly straddle and negotiate these two universes and worldviews. And, you know, why and how you become a mystic is notoriously undefined. And so therefore, it kind of gives that its charm because people can say, I just know because I know, and they have used it. And, and in that case, or you can say that there is a medium of messaging between me and some kind of higher reality, higher power, and I am the messenger or the conduit for that power. So that is usually how a mystic puts together her ability to become a mystic. But in Khanna's case, I think the interesting part is we do not see anybody around her, any documentation of any other form of resistance other than the one that her father invented. So that gives us enough reason to believe that 
the fight was not between a more rational realistic reasoning or world view versus a mystical world view the conflict was between the two of them about who is a better mathematician but yeah i recently read somewhere that pythagoras the mathematician from greece he was also a half scientist and half mystic and i was like overjoyed to see that definition you know that half scientist half mystic because khana is exactly that to me and what a great coming together of disciplinary interests i love that she is so fascinating which i suppose brings us to the final question of the podcast you've already shared so much of why you like her but if you could sum it up why is kana your favorite mystic i didn't approach her first as a mystic so i think she is one of my favorite rhetoricians and a mystic at that too and i love more what she says and how she says and the identity she creates to be able to say that and this is where i bring mysticism and rhetoric closely together which may not be an obvious combination but she's one of my favorite rhetoricians and because she also does the role of being a mystic in 12th century ce india she is also one of my favorite mystics yeah i'm not aware of too many mystics like her in india i mean meera bai obviously is one of them and i love meera for her identity that she created for the kind of songs she wrote you know for literary poetic abilities but uh, if you ask me to put them on a scale of preference khana would be more because of a certain kind of a feisty nature that she has a certain kind of resistance she still builds in her narrative and there is something very altruistic about her mysticism it is intensely like i said in public service and if she wasn't so fanatic about doing well for the people she was living with and she did cuz she was not poor by any means you know like she came from a wealthy background her father-in-law and her husband made good money so she was not in any kind of personal financial distress to kind of have to do this to help her own condition living conditions but she purely did this for the poor underprivileged people of her village community at the risk of her own life so those are very very commendable qualities to have and i definitely think that's why she's my favorite mystic Given that this is a podcast about mystics and mysticism, I love that this is an episode where the truth of the matter is that you like her and you like her writing and you like the things that she says and does and her character and the fact that she's a mystic is kind of secondary. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for being so tolerant, Amanda. <laughs> I knew, I knew. I mean, for a podcast on mysticism, am I saying the right thing? But I, I just have to say that, you know, yes, I would have equally loved her if she said, you know, I'm a mathematician and I don't believe in mysticism and I, I'm just giving you this because I think this is the right way of thinking of things. But uh, mysticism is the kind of ethical justification that she uses. and for that she becomes a mystic and you know i again admire her for that but at the end of the day do i think of her as a mystic first and a woman later no as a woman first and mystic later well you know what from the sounds of it that's probably a lot closer to how she thought about herself i'm sure that's the case yeah 
She probably did too. And with that, we've come to the end of the podcast. Sabashri, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Kona. Oh, thank you so much. I hope people are interested in listening to Kona's story. And thank you for giving me this excellent opportunity and a deeply personal experience because Kona is not known. And for all that she had to undergo, not knowing her is one of the worst things we can do to her memory. So this podcast, you know, is a way of talking about her to an audience who would never know her. And I think Kona would like herself to be known. So thank you for me and on behalf of Kona for asking all these great questions and allowing us to speak. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Samuel Budinet about Albert the Great.